Now, depending on your age, you may not have a different definition of the term catfishing. Now, some of you, like, what are you talking about? Catfishing? You, that's where you catch some catfish in the river, and you put bait on a you know, hook and line and reel and that whole, you, what are you talking about? Is there, well, but then to, of a certain age, catfishing has another connotation and another meaning. Uh, several years back, uh, about 2010, there was a documentary, I think, on MTV, and that word became into the uh, vocabulary. And catfishing is a term of those who use an online persona or identity in order to deceive somebody, either under the pretense of a romance, finding a lost love, and they think they're talking to uh, Mr. Romeo, who's got money and is a bodybuilder and has three Corvettes in his driveway, and, and in reality, they're talking to some guy in a coffee shop in Ghana, all right? Uh, you know, and, but it's all, it's all giving a false image online. Sometimes the situations are quite sad of, of people who've been duped and tricked into giving and sending money, thousands and thousands of dollars, and yet they never met this person, but they are convinced that they are really talking to Taylor Swift. Really, I, I'm not making these things up. They are convinced that they are the love of Taylor Swift's life, even though they've never met her, but they have the proof of conversing with her online and sending her flowers and all these things. And, and in other words, the whole thing is a scam, and they call that catfishing. It's a scam to deceive you. They're deceiving you. They're, 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 they're using deception to take advantage of your life. Maybe you've been deceived profoundly in a situation, maybe in a, in a situation, maybe in a relationship, or maybe in a sales situation. You bought something or uh, purchased something, a car or a house or whatever it is, and the person used deception. And, uh, you know, if we say the names Bernie Madoff, Enron, Ponzi scheme, there's certain words in our vocabulary in the Amer American culture that the very name connotates and brings up deception and financial ruin. You with me? But there's something, while that is serious, there's something I believe that is even more serious because there is an eternity that is a, the eternal, there are eternal consequences, and that is spiritual or religious deception. And this is nothing new. This has been going on since the garden by the master of religious deception, all right? Uh, if you want to study the model of religious deception, you don't need to travel much further than Genesis. Uh, you may have had an experience where you were uh, spiritually deceived, maybe a hypocritical pastor, an abusive church, uh, maybe an outright cult. You know, I know some of you from talking with you, at, thank, you know, a long time back, you, the, the religious group uh, that you were a part of, you later found out that they were a cult. Uh, in other words, you've, you know, and sometimes those people who have had those kind of deceptions and experiences, oftentimes it takes time to kind of come out of that and could kind of uh, uh, release some of those things that, that they experience. Well, we know that there is one behind all lies and deception, right? In fact, Jesus identifies him as Satan, and I'm just, these won't be on the screen, but you may want to write them down. John 8, 44 says that Satan is in the full-time deception business. Satan, Jesus says that Satan does not stand for the truth because there's no truth in him that whenever, one version says, uh, of course, he says that he's the father of all lies. One translation says that when he speaks, he lies because lying is his native language. So we know that all deception and all lying derives from Satan himself. Satan often presents himself or those who represent him 
as messengers, or some, I think the King James says angels of light. They give the pretense, uh, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, that they give the pretense that they're doing something good. Listen, cults wouldn't thrive. Let's, Scientology, okay, we're, we're familiar with Scientology in there, would not thrive unless they were doing something helpful in some way to help people. That's the lure. They're not standing. Their billboards or their signage, you go to Clearwater, it isn't advertising, join us and we will destroy your life. That is a bad marketing tool, all right? So there must be something that people are drawn to to be helpful, and Satan certainly uh, peddles his wares through cult leaders and gurus, and uh, again, as 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So we're going to talk about deception, and the title of the message this morning is Dealing with Spiritual Deception, Dealing with Spiritual Deception, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verse 18 through 23. And I'm going to read it. You can follow on the screen. I hope you brought your Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Remember, he's writing to believers. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This morning, we want to unpack that around the theme of dealing with spiritual deception, and I'm going to break it down uh, for us to kind of work with this with uh, a couple of different uh, ways. And the first is, is every Christian... Every Christian can discern spiritual deceivers. Remember, John is writing to Christians. And so he operates from the premise that if you are a Christian, he's going to explain how every Christian can discern spiritual deceivers. What can we learn about these deceivers? And he gives us several insights concerning the false teachers. One, he says that these false teachers are plentiful. False teachers are plentiful. Verse 18. He says, it is the last children, it is the last hour. I love his fatherly directive there. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. See, by the end of the century, this is roughly written around the year 90. We're in 2020, right? And so this is around the year 90, give or take a few years. And John, the apostle, already says, I mean, this is, you know, roughly 60 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that within 60 years... John is saying that there are already antichrists, plural, multiple, who have appeared. And he sees that these 
purveyors of religious deception and false teaching that are antichrists are actually laying the groundwork and in their characteristic are much like the ultimate antichrist that the Bible also addressed. Even in that verse, he recognizes a singular antichrist, but also speaks plural of these antichrists. He says, you have heard that antichrist, the antichrist, is coming, verse 18. Uh, Paul addresses him, and we won't take time because that's not uh, allows our time to do that. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul identifies him and calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, of the one who will be identified as a personification, if you will, of Satan that will be identified in some realm prior to the second coming of Christ. But he also says in verse 18 that many antichrists, plural, have appeared. And he means that the evil spirit, this evil characteristic that will be, again, identified with this final figure of antichrist, he said, is already working in these false teachers that are infecting and confusing believers in the church and the churches that John is uh, the apostolic authority over. Now that, remember, we said when we did the introduction to 1 John that 1 John is a letter of crisis, that he's having to address this because there were those who were a part of the churches that he, had, that he oversaw, but they had departed, they had left, they had uh, decided that they wanted to pursue some uh, different type of teaching, or they had a revelation about who Jesus is, or, and so they left the church that the Apostle John, uh, the, the authoritative church that was there in the first century, and they, so it wasn't just leaving one church to go down to, you know, it wasn't leaving First Baptist to go down to Second Baptist, okay? We're not talking about that. He was saying that when he talks about leaving us, he's saying, we'll unpack this in a little bit, that they were leaving, they were departing from the faith, okay? They didn't just swap in churches because you like the carpet better. It's not talking about that, all right? But he says that these antichrists, he identifies these false teachers who have risen up, and many of them we know from uh, different people who study the history of this church, that many of these people were uh, some of the leaders, of the church that John was overseeing, that they were uh, elders, that they were leaders, and they left. And you know, anytime something that like that happens, a leader in a church leaves, and they're going to start their own little group, and they want to, they kind of want to focus on some little novel teaching or whatever, and they immediately have an audience because they can draw people because of the relationship, and they abuse that. He call, he gives the label of these false teachers and calls them. Antichrist. They are anti-Christ. They are against Christ. It isn't just we have some disagreements. I don't think I'm on point number two yet. Uh, It isn't that we just have some disagreements, but they have actually, by their rejection of the truth, they have actually put themselves against Jesus himself. A lot more we could say about that. But notice also these false teachers are not only plentiful, and now you can go to that. These false teachers usually come from within the church. I kind of tricked you there and got into that, so that's my fault. But look at verse 19 again. Or verse 19, we read it earlier, but look at this. It says that they went out from where? They went out from us, meaning they were a part of us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have persevered. But they went out that it might become plain their identity of the real colors that they were not, that they all are not of us. You see what he's saying there? 
he's saying these false teachers that John labels as antichrist, antichrist, he said uh, uh, their identity was made known not because they carried pitchforks and wore a, a red suit with uh, horns on their head. No, how was their true identity is because they chose to depart and leave, not, again, leaving a local church to go in fellowship with other believers, but John is saying that they left and abandoned the truth. They abandoned the Christian doctrine. They abandoned the Christian teaching. They abandoned those things that he articulated back in chapter 1. We'll look at that a little later. They arose. Where did they come from? They arose from within. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Now, there are certainly people on the outside in this day, there's more false doctrine being peddled because somebody's got a YouTube channel. All you need is a phone and a free YouTube account, and you too can broadcast nonsense 24 hours a day. And I have friends and people that send me these YouTube videos, and it's just, it's ridiculous because it, it says, do you not have, I mean, I'm thankful in one sense, they say, what do you think of this? But I'm like, you should know that this is crazy. But there's a certain air of authority, if you're on video and you've got cool graphics, and you've got a nice website, and you write a lot of books, write a lot of stuff, and people think, oh, wow, there must really be a lot of knowledge there. Not necessarily. But these, these false teachers arose from within the church. Some of you know a little bit about church history, and you know that one of the things in the timeline of church history is that the church has battled those who would distort and pervert the true gospel from the beginning of the church. In fact, entire letters of the New Testament, Galatians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John, Jude, all really are directly written in response to some error that is being purveyed among the churches and that is confusing Christians in the local church. And many of the other letters address it in indirect ways. And so it was always a battle. You know, again, you may hear about church councils, the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon and various councils. Don't immediately think, oh, that's just a bunch of nonsense. Remember, they didn't have a bound, doesn't mean the Bible wasn't existent, but they didn't have a lot, plus people weren't readers, they weren't articulate. So these church councils that came in later years were given a directive, I believe, by the Lord to define and be precise about what was to be taught and believe. In other words, what was the precise language when we talk about that Jesus is fully man and fully God? What is the precise language to make sure that that language that we confess, that we say we believe this, is consistent with what Scripture teaches. That was what is often hammered out in many of these church councils. And we're grateful that they helped us and, and were able to defend the faith. But John says that these antichrists went out from us. Just because someone is in the church doesn't mean they are a part of the church, right? I think Corey Ten Boom says, just because a mouse is in a cookie jar doesn't mean the mouse is a cookie. So just because someone or some group or some entity or organization even has the name of Jesus Christ on their identity of their organization or building does not mean that they are followers of Jesus Christ. He says... They, they went out from us. It's interesting when you look at some of the people that are more well-known as cults and cult leaders, it's interesting when you find that many of them, not all of them, 
were a part at one time of sound, orthodox, Bible-believing churches. Now, it doesn't mean they were converted. Don't misunderstand me. But it means that they were at least exposed and chose to deviate. One of the more infamous people in cultdom is Jim Jones. Now, Jim Jones was a pervert and a heretic from the beginning, but he identified and was a part of some orthodox Christian denominations when he was uh, pastoring and leading for a time in Indiana before he moved to California and, of course, uh, moved to Guyana. But they broke away. There was various reasons, and that's, again, some of these reasons, it's interesting, and I'll just throw this out. One thing you find consistently connected with purveyors of false doctrine, and when I'm talking about false doctrine, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about first-tier, core, essential issues. Deity of Christ, nature of God, you with me? Justification by Christ alone. I'm not talking about whether we baptize infants or adults. I'm not talking about whether we sing hymns or choruses. I'm not talking about whether women, you agree, women can be elders or not. I'm not talking about those. And again, there may be some people think, well, those are first. Look, I'm talking about the core doctrinal truths that, like, you remember the game Jenga? I use that illustration all the time. You know, Jenga, you pull out the squares until everything collapses. You pull out these core doctrines, the whole house falls down. You with me? That's what I'm talking about here, okay? They departed. They broke away. But what I started to say is that one of the things you find linked to people that are into these what I call cultish false teachings and some of the uh, origins of them is interesting, interesting you find linked in their personal behavior sexual immorality. That almost goes hand in hand. Sometimes people embrace false teaching because they have to. They have to justify. Remember what Paul, and I've read this many times, but it doesn't hurt to read it again. Look in Acts 20. It'll be on the screen. As he was leaving the elders, and saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus where he spent about three and a half years. Listen to his very clear warning. The last thing that he said to them as he's getting ready to get on the ship, wonderful, beautiful moment. They wept, they hugged. I mean, he was a part of their life, but he gave them this very somber warning, and he says, verse 29, Acts 20, I know, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, where? Among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We'll read the Scripture later, but you know one of the job descriptions of the Holy Spirit is he draws people to who? Jesus. You you do know that, don't you? Are we going to just stop right here and do? All right. He bears witness, Jesus said. He'll come, the helper, and he'll bear witness of me, pointing people to Jesus. So whether it's a person, a church, organization, that it's all about them, ding, ding, something, you know, because if they're not pointing you to Jesus, hello, That should be a little signal. Something's out of whack there. That's free, no charge. But some of these false leaders, and again, Paul or John, going back to John, he says that these are people that what Paul said there in Acts 20, that we're seeing evidence in John's writing in the church. And sometimes these leaders, because they're teachers and they have attractive personalities and they have a charismatic, I don't mean charismatic doctrinally, but they have a very charismatic personality, a winsome Uh, And they eventually like and enjoy that attention. Remember James 3 says, Beware, lest any of you should be teachers. 
Because there's something dangerously detrimental when, whether you're a singer or a teacher or whatever, because, you know, listen, it is, a, it is an unusual person that doesn't enjoy affirmation. Now, if y'all get quiet on me, I'm just going to preach longer. I'm just telling you right now. We, you know, because, and that is the, that can lead to pride. And then all of a sudden, I'm teaching something that nobody in 2,000 years of church history has ever taught before. And I discovered it, Sean. And you're like, ooh. Be careful of people that are peddling novelty doctrines and who draw, in a sense, whether they say it directly or indirectly, that they uniquely have been gifted by God of this revelation. Danger. Danger. You see, the test of what we would call orthodoxy, and I'm not talking about Greek orthodoxy, I'm using orthodoxy, orthodoxy to refer to the historical uh, understanding of what Christianity has meant from Christ, the apostles, and on down the line. Has there been divergent groups? Have there been offshoots? Have they been primary doctrines, second and third? Yeah, there's been all sorts of that in church history. But there has been a continuous line of understanding of what Christianity on the core essentials as it relates to Christ, the nature of Christ, the salvation through Christ alone. See, that was the, the Reformation that recovered many of those things that had become lost. It didn't mean they didn't exist, but they were recovered. Now, the Reformation, they, they had some other issues, but as far as recovery of the centrality of Christ and Him crucified, that was what we owe our brothers of the Reformation, period. See, John... He addressed this from the beginning. Remember, go back if you have your Bibles. It won't be on the screen. But remember how he opens in 1 John? He says, right at the beginning, here's the apostle, one of the 12. He was there. I take his word over a lot of things of what Jesus said and did, wouldn't you? He was there. He said, that which is from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. We've handled with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2, this life was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you. Verse 3, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And by virtue of having fellowship, not just with us, he's not saying that you just get to hang out with us. He's saying, no, by fellowship with us, you're embracing this truth of what we proclaim. And by virtue of embracing that truth, you have fellowship and relationship with God. Do you see how he's intertwining all those things? So when he says, these guys departed from us, they abandon. They abandon the truth. Third characteristic of these false teachers also in verse 19 is the third thing is these false teachers never truly experience the saving grace of God. They were never believers. They were never saved. Oh, but you don't know. I mean, I, this guy, he was, well, John says that the evidence, the evidence that has been made plain is they left. Their life, their actions demonstrated what it was hidden from our eyes. There's been multiple, and the, you know what, it, there's a, I can't remember the term now, it doesn't matter, but there's this whole thing, and it isn't new, of people that, oh, this person, he was the lead singer of one of these great Christian bands, and now he's an atheist. So what? He never was a Christian. He may have been fronting a band, but his life, and I hope that that is just a season in his life, but if he is a believer, he will not remain in a state of rejection of the truth. 
You know, we idolize people. We, we say, oh, but we, we've seen all their works. We saw them heal and do all these things. Listen, Satan can make a phony look great. He can play tricks. Remember Pharaoh's magicians? They could, they could match some of Moses' stuff. They abandoned the truth. Apostle John is very direct. He said, if they were of us, they would have remained. But the real proof is they're gone. They left. Listen, a Christian, this is not talking about the Christian. We all go through seasons, or sometimes seasons of struggle and doubt and Sometimes, you know, there's seasons where we use, I'll use the term, we backslide maybe into sin. And he's not talking about that. Because the, the true believer will never remain in a state of backslidden, which is an interesting word, uh, permanently. If they are a true believer, they will not, the Holy Spirit who's made claim on their life and the blood of Christ has died for them, they will not remain in that state. I, I believe that's, there's other Christians that do teach differently, but that's what I believe. I believe that the true, and I believe this is a verse that I think helps us understand that, that there is a persevering of true believers who embrace the faith. Not that we don't have struggles, not that we have our ups and downs, that's part of the process of sanctification. He is talking about antichrist. Antichrist. He's identifying them with the same characteristic as the big guy, antichrist. You hear what I'm saying? He's saying they are satanic in their very nature. Why? Jesus told some, some people in his day that if you were of your father... Or if you were of my father, you would know who I am. But you are of your father, the devil, and you are children of the devil. Jesus didn't read the book on how to win friends and influence people, did he? What he's saying is that these are individuals who are guilty of a word that sometimes is tossed about, and it's the word heresy. That's heresy. Well, what is heresy? Heresy is the conscious, willful departure from the faith's foundational tenets, core beliefs. I've said this again. You know, again, I start naming them. I'm going to leave out one. The Trinity, the nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. He's man. The justification through Christ and Christ alone. Though, again, the virgin birth. I mean, again, there are things, again, that without these, you do not have Christianity. Let me show you something interesting. Jude 3. I didn't say chapter 1 because there's, there there's only one chapter, so it's Jude, Jude verse 3. Notice something here. In Jude 3, written roughly about the same time that John the Apostle was writing this letter, I want you to notice something. It says, Beloved, Jude uh, was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, he was the full child of Mary and Joseph, one of the brothers. But, and so he's writing... He's certainly a, became a follower after the resurrection, like many of most of all other Jesus' siblings. Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, here again, controversy, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, let me show you something, and it's highlighted there on the screen. Notice he says, I'm not writing for you to contend for faith. I'm not writing for you to contend for your faith. 
He says, I'm writing for you to contend. When you contend with somebody, you know, you're, you're defending, you're wrestling, you're, you, you get it, the idea. I want you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Here's what I think is worth noting here. That here we are, roughly about the same time period that the Apostle John has written 1 John, roughly about 90, the year 90, Jude is saying that there already is a body of truth that is identified enough in this early period that can be called the faith. And that at that body, which has already been defined, that we said this is the faith that you should defend, you should contend for, you should, this is the measuring stick by which we judge those who are not in the faith. Now, why do I point that out? Because there's this erroneous idea that Christian doctrine and teaching, and even the Bible, did not come to full fruition and acceptance until the Roman Catholic Church. And that's just not historically accurate. Because long before the institution called the Roman Catholic Church, there already was an identifiable body of doctrine that Jude says you, could, you should contend for, you should defend. If you have an ESV study Bible, and if you don't, ask Santa for one for Christmas. It will do you good. There is a note there. I'm going to read it. He says, the faith, which is that known, received body of truth about Jesus and salvation through him, that has once for all. That, don't let that slip by. It's not, we're not continually defining and rewriting and discovering. There is a once for all. There's a period that God has put after some doctrines. In other words, the note says, listen, by the time that Jude wrote his letter, quote-unquote, the faith had already been fixed and established in the apostolic teaching of the early church and therefore could not be changed but was under attack and need of defense. Do you see why that's important? So that in this early time, it wasn't just something that evolved and discovered and later on the, the institution of the Roman Catholic Church established the Christian doctrines and were able to define what the Bible was. No. All the Roman Catholic Church did in many respects is only recognize what was already there. When they recognized that the book of Romans was the Word of God, they were just following what was known and recognized by the Apostle Peter when in one of his letters he calls Paul's writings and he puts it on par with other scriptures. Do you see what I'm saying here? That there are some truths that God has established that become the baseline for what we define as Christianity. And he says, false teachers, verse 22 and 23, are they which deny who Jesus really is. Look at verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. I may come back and, and uh, address that because what that, again, what they're denying is these false teachers, and it gives you a little hint here, these false teachers are not only denying Jesus of Nazareth as the expected, anticipated Messiah, but they're also denying the essential, unique, one-of-a-kind, begotten of God, sonship of Jesus Christ and his personal, eternal relationship with the Father. They are saying, yes, we, Jesus is important, but he's one of many other important people. They were denying the unique Jesus, Son of God. We're coming into the season we celebrate Christmas. What is Christmas? It's the celebration of the incarnation. God became man. 
Why is that a big deal? Because if Christ were only God, he would not have been able to die in the place of sinful humanity and pay the price of our salvation. If he were only a man, the death he died would have just been that of a martyr. There's been lots of martyrs, but it would have no eternal benefit to any of us. But because he died in his incarnation as as human and God, he was the perfect sacrifice for sin because he was raised to live forever, giving proof that he was exactly who he said he was, that proof authenticated by God, raising him from the dead, and because of who he is in his identity, he has authority to give eternal life. Not only is every Christian can discern spiritual deceivers, but every Christian can discredit spiritual deceivers. Every Christian can discredit spiritual deceivers. Look at verse 20. John says, again, he's writing to believers, but you, Christians, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. How can Christians discredit spiritual deceivers? Well, number one, according to verse 20, genuine believers have the Holy Spirit. Genuine believers, go back one, genuine believers have the Holy Spirit. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Is that a big deal? Yeah. The Holy Spirit, he says, you have been anointed. At salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit. And notice it's past tense. You have been anointed. The anointing from the Holy One refers to that infilling of the Holy Spirit given to when a person is regenerated by the power of God. Now stay with me. Acts 10.38, these aren't on the screen. The Bible says that God anointed Jesus, and his name literally means anointed one, right? Acts 10.38 says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus said to his disciples, when they received the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the same Spirit who anointed Christ, the anointed one, anoints Christians with the Holy Spirit. So how are you able to discredit deceivers? You have the Holy Spirit inside of you as a believer, and based upon having the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, that's a pretty good weapon to know the truth. And then genuine believers, secondly, not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but because we have the Holy Spirit, genuine believers know God's saving truth. John 16, 13, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will do what? He will guide you into all the truth. Now, there's an immediate context there to his disciples that what they spoke and what they wrote had an authority that you and I don't. So there's an immediate context there. But in a broader sense, the role of the Holy Spirit is to guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Again, immediate context, those disciples wrote and spoke with an authority given to them by Christ. We don't have that. And don't let anybody kid you and thinking they're running around with that same authority. It's not true. But the Holy Spirit's role is to guide you into all truth. So if I have the Holy Spirit, and one of his job assignments is to lead me and guide me into all truth, right? And the Bible says in Ephesians 1.13 that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, This is salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit. How many of you can vegetables? Oh, don't be ashamed. I know you're not going to go off to Montana and make your own water and that kind of thing. How many of you have ever canned? How many of you ever, let me just, how many of you have ever opened a jar 
of canned, all right? How many of you ever open a bottle of Snapple? And if you don't hear that pop, why? Because that pop tells you that thing was sealed to keep, you from, keep that from spoiling. We've been given the Holy Spirit to keep us from spoiling. Are you taking notes down there? Okay, good. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm just teasing her because she likes it. All right. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides us and keeps us in truth. Now, does that mean that we know everything there is to know about everything? No. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for the Holy Spirit to give the church pastors and teachers, right? It wouldn't make sense to not grow and study the Word. And, yeah. But Romans 8, 16 is helpful. Remember what it says? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? That we are the children of God. How do I know I'm saved? Because some guy at an altar had me fill out a card and said, don't ever doubt your salvation? No. How do I know I'm a child of God? Is because the Holy Spirit bears witness that I belong to Him. The Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, we, we only know in part. But someday we will know all, right? But right now we know in part. We look through that glass darkly, right? We don't see everything perfect, but one day the perfect will come. But what we have, this is the point. I think this is what 2 Peter 1.3 gets at. That what we have is not necessarily exhaustive truth, but it is sufficient to keep us in truth. Look at 2 Peter 1.3 with this thought in mind. His divine power has granted to us what? All things that pertain to life and what? Godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him, Christ, who called us to His own glory and excellence. That's why you can give a new believer a Bible, and guess what? They're going to learn about God. How do we respond to people that are struggling? Jude, in the New Living Translation, says, And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. There's, there's some whose their faith is just wavering, and they need you to disciple them. They need you to walk them through the, the gospel. They, they, you know, you need to... But then there's others that are literally becoming engulfed and entrenched in a system, a false teaching, a cult, and you need to snatch them like flames out of judgment. I think the thing that is a reminder for us as believers is that when it comes to truth, uh, listen, I, I, I believe John 17. Remember John 17, Jesus prayed that we would all be one. He prayed for the unity of the church, right? But the unity of the church doesn't mean that we divorce truth in order to accomplish unity. And there's that kind of mindset. That unity becomes the goal and we compromise on truth. And I'm not talking about third tiers. I'm not talking about the, I'm talking about those things that with or without these truths, and if you were here on that Wednesday, I went through that blueprint series. There's no compromise for core Christian, historical, orthodox truth. You put a, whatever word you want to put in there. We can't compromise on some things. We can't compromise. During World War II, I love history. Neville Chamberlain was a prime minister for a time, and Britain was very much a, a, a nation that wanted to uh, uh, avoid a war with Germany. They'd gone through World War I. They didn't want to go through another war. And Neville Chamberlain kind of uh, was, a, was the prime minister, and he saw it. Remember, he met with Hitler, and, 
And, and he basically made some deals and said, look, you want Czechoslovakia, you want Poland, we won't do anything in order to just guarantee the peace, right? And he, the famous picture of him getting off the plane, and supposedly he's waving a piece of paper that Adolf Hitler signed, guaranteeing that Germany would keep England at peace if they just kind of let them do, do their thing. Forget Czechoslovakia, forget these people, let the Nazis subjugate them, enslave them, and murder them. We'll turn a blind eye, just leave our island alone, okay? But thankfully, there was a prime minister that came after Neville Chamberlain, and his name was Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill said and made this wise observation, and let's put it in our context. He said, Winston Churchill said, an appeaser, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. You see, when you begin to make compromises for the truth, sooner or later, you'll be eaten by the falsehood yourself. But let me close, close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. You know, no sermon is true and accurate unless you have at least one quote by Charles Spurgeon, right? But listen carefully. Listen, look at me and listen. Listen to what something he says. Talking about discernment. Discernment, Spurgeon said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right.